All right, well, we're in Second uh, Samuel 14 tonight, Second Samuel 14, so we're getting, getting there slowly but surely. Well, let's open in a word of prayer and then we can uh, uh, start. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. Thank you that we can gather here in this place as your people and with your word that you've given to us. And Lord, we thank you that it's uh, inspired, it's inerrant, um, it's effective for our living each and every day as we apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we just pray that tonight you would allow us to draw out of this passage, Second uh, Samuel 14, uh, the lessons, principles, applications that you want us to have and apply to our own lives. And thank you for each one that's come out. And thank you for those that <coughs> uh, couldn't make it tonight. We just pray that you would uh, bless them wherever they're at and, and um, remind them that uh, you're there with them as well. And so just lead us and guide us through our time tonight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Second uh, Samuel chapter 14. And uh, we're going to be looking at the schemers tonight. The schemers. And so two, two Wednesdays ago, um, when we were in the previous chapter, we saw David's dysfunctional family and... Uh, his son Amnon had violated his half sister Tamar, and she was the full sister of Absalom. And this whole scheme was egged on by a guy by the name of uh, Jonadab, and he was actually a cousin to them. And so here we are two years later Absalom, uh, Tamar's brother, plots the murder, premeditated murder, of his half brother. Amnon, and not really because he raped his half-sister, but really because he had other ulterior motives, because um, if it would have been because of that, he probably would have done it right away. It would have been a crime of passion. Um, somebody raped your sister, you're probably going to do some damage to the person who did it. <laughs> At least I would. Um, most of us would. And usually the law takes that into account. Uh, but here it's two years later, so it was obviously premeditated. And after he murders Amnon, <laughs> he flees. And he flees to Geshur, to his uh, mother's father's house there. And he's there for about three years. And three years have passed since the death of Amnon. And Absalom is living away from Jerusalem. Uh, David is in Jerusalem. He's hiding in the, the house of his grandfather. And so here we come to chapter 14, and it tells us a little more about David's family. Um, it tells us really about the downward spiral that was prophesied by the prophet Nathan earlier, that the sword would not um, leave David's household. And it, it all began with the events of David and Bathsheba, David's adultery, and um, his uh, involvement in the death of uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And all this happens, and uh, now we, we come down to this after David has her, Bathsheba's husband, assassinated. The consequence, we just see the consequence of sin going on and on here in this family. But with that being said, I want to read chapter 14, and then we'll go back and kind of work our way through, through the, the section of Scripture. Now, 
I want to start in uh, verse uh, 39 of chapter 13. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zezariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put words in her mouth. <clears throat> and when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field, and there was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, the avenger of blood, kill no more, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair on your son's on your son shall fall to the ground. Verse 12, then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king, he said, speak. And the woman said, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his brandished one home again. We all must die. We are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up. But God will not take away uh, life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought, I will speak to the king and it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant for the king will hear and deliver uh, his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my lord, the king will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And the king answered the woman, Do not hide anything from me, I ask of you. And the woman said, Let my Lord, the king, speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, As sure as you live, my king, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has said, it was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all the words in my mouth of your servant, in the, in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. 
But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king. And the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut, his, he cut the hair off his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, it weighed, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come. And he sent a second time, but Joab would still not come. Then he said to his servant, See Joab's field next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come up from Geshur? I would be, it would be uh, better for me to still, uh, to still be there. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on the face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Interesting turn of events uh, in this chapter. Um, when, we, when we see these... Uh, these kind of things in the Bible, the previous chapter included, to me it really uh, speaks to the, the genuineness, the veracity of the Word of God, that, that it's, it includes stories like this. Um, and it doesn't uh, water it down. It doesn't uh, whitewash it. It kind of leaves it right there for everybody to see. And so here we have um, this starting, and I, I wanted to read the last verse in chapter 13 because I want to point something out to you. And there's many theologians that believe this, but um, at the end of chapter 13, where it says uh, simply in verse 39, and the spirit of the king, first of all, the word spirit isn't even in the text in the Hebrew. It's not even there. Um, secondly, uh, when it says that he uh, longed to, in verse 39 it says, and he longed to go out to Absalom. That word longed is not, I mean, we read that, we go, why? Okay, he really is missing his son. Well, no, it, it suggests that all the feeling has been used up. <laughs> There's nothing left. Um, so it's not, it's not a really good translation in our English versions and I'm going to give you a better translation in a second by a, a Bruce Waltke who, who, 
who is very um, scholarly. But then when you look at where it says, um, because he was comforted about Amnon, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, okay, your son is murdered by your other son, and that's going to be a comfort to you. Well, you know, that word can also be translated grieved. So the ESV, for whatever reason, really kind of messed up this verse. Uh, Yeah. And then down in in, in verse 1 of 14, when Joab, the son of uh, Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, it almost sounds like he's once again longing for it. Well, those words, went out, is actually used in Chronicles, and it's used for marching out to war. So, you know, this is not a, you know, uh, a good relationship between a father and a son. It's not like David's in Jerusalem pining, oh, you know, poor, poor Absalom, I wish he would come home. Um, it's basically just the opposite. Here's a better translation. Bruce Walkie put it this way. King David longed intensely to march out against Absalom, for he was grieved about Amnon. Joab, the son of uh, Zezariah, uh, he discerned that the king was ill-disposed toward Absalom. And the reason I bring this up is because it really puts into perspective um, verse 4. It helps us understand what takes place in this little story that this woman uh, makes up. Because Joab was really uh, King David's right-hand man. And so what he's seeing... Uh, before him, he was very loyal to the crown. He was very loyal to King David. He was also very loyal to the, the, the Davidic dynasty. You know, he was looking at this going, wow, this is not good. You know, one son's dead, and the king is basically going to take care of the other one eventually. And uh, who's going to take over? David's getting a little older. What's going to happen Who's going to be the heir to the throne? And so Joab, uh, who thinks he knows best in this situation, um, works for the interest of the kingdom. And he puts all his personal things aside, and he's working for the interest of the, the kingdom. The question is, does he really know what's best? And that's what we want to kind of walk through here. And so you see this strategy by Joab come up, and he comes up with this, this, this first thing here with, with this woman, um, it says in verse 2, And Joab sent to, to Koah and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Now that the word wise can also mean um, guile. It can also mean cunning. It can also mean crafty. All right? So he, he picked this woman, probably, first of all, the idea that he picked a woman, knew that David kind of had a um, weakness in that area. He's kind of a wimpy guy. He seemed to always give in to the women for whatever reason. And Tekoa was about 10 miles south of, of, of Jerusalem. And so here is David's commander-in-chief and nephew by his half-sister, uh, Joab. And he, he said, you know, this is going to be politically better for David and for Israel, if, if David, King David, would somehow bring Absalom back to Jerusalem from Geshur, and then the heir would be in line there. Um, now, Absalom, of course, now David's heir to the throne, 
uh, by through the custom. Uh, it was uh, Amnon, but remember, Absalom took him out. And that's why I said it didn't really have as much to do with the rape of his sister as it did with his political agenda, I think. And we're going to find that out uh, in, the, in the coming chapters as well. It kind of comes up. Um, but David have a, oddly, I mean, it was his son, so he did have a love for his son, Absalom, even though he was a murderer. Uh, but David really had a capacity to love a lot of different people. And he couldn't really stand up to anybody. He was too too uh, worried about, you know, um, maybe ticking people off or whatever. And so he, he, you know, he couldn't stand up to his own kids. He, you know, his own son murders his other brother and he doesn't even say anything. He gets angry, but that's about it. He doesn't say anything. So, you know, that's not really good parenting skills when you stop and think about it. You have all this chaos in your family and, and nothing's happening uh, from the parents at all and so he grabs this lady who thinks he'll he'll work out and he says pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments don't anoint yourself with oil but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead in other words you're just beside yourself you're not taking care of yourself so don't fix yourself up for this this detail look a little haggard Uh, go to the king and speak thus to him so and, and Joab told him, told her exactly what to say. And it, it, it's very similar to what Nathan told David before. I mean, it's a very similar thing. And then David just doesn't, you know, yeah, same thing. You know, it's like fool me once. Okay, fool me twice. Well, here's David being, you know, fooled again uh, to a certain degree. And, um, you know, the first... The thing here I think that's important is that we understand we must not confuse guile for wisdom. You know, it says that she's wise, but, but really, um, you know, he uses this, the, the guileness of this woman to really deceive David into making a commitment. Now, he thinks he's doing the right thing, Joab, okay? And so it goes on there, and you, you see that, that um, in, in verse... Uh, uh, five and the king said to her, "What's your trouble?" You know he wants to help. He's not a bad guy. She answered, "Well, I, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. Your servant had two sons. They quarrel with one another in the field. And there's no one to separate. One of them struck the other and killed him." So this has really no correlation to Amnon and Absalom. I mean, this was kind of a crime of passion here. They were in an argument. It got out of hand, and one ended up dead. Okay, you probably wouldn't be convicted of murder in that circumstance. Um, more manslaughter, something like that, a lesser, a lesser charge. Well, verse 7, And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. In other words, she took the son that lived, kept him under her protection, and the, the rest of the people want to kill him because that was kind of what the law said, um, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. In other words, she's a widow. She has no husband. There's nobody to carry on the tradition of the family, the name of the family. So in that culture, that's a very important thing. And so here she's kind of pleading her case before the king. 
And if they kill my son, I'm not going to have anybody. And uh, they would destroy, destroy this whole thing. They would quench my coal that is left. In other words, any kind of legacy that my husband may have, uh, the name of my husband, there won't be anything. There won't be anything left to our family. In verse 8, And the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give you orders concerning you. Now, that's kind of like somebody saying, Yeah, just give me the number and I'll call you back. You know, um, do you ever have those people call your house? You know, and you get on the phone with them and they want to try to sell you something. Good tactic is to say, you know what? Just give me your name and number and I'll give you a call back when I make my decision. Usually they end up hanging up on you because they don't want to do that. Um, yeah, yeah, they'll hang up on that too. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of what David's, you know, okay, I hear your story. I feel sorry for you. Um, I'll get back to you on this. Well, this woman's not taking that for an answer. Uh, you know, he, he basically says, just go away. I, I got other things on my mind, lady. Verse 9, And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. In other words, I'm not trying to get you involved in this. this it's not, not that issue, but I need a rendering here. I've come to you because you're the king. You're the one that's supposed to a minister justice in this situation. And the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Now, what David meant by that, who knows? <laughs> you know, I mean, if I'm going to take him out or, or whatever. But he, he was pretty, pretty adamant in his statement there. But she still doesn't want to leave. And she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God and the, the avenger of blood kill no more. In other words, I don't want any more bloodshed in my family. And can't you kind of invoke some kind of a thing here that, that you can prevent this? And so finally he says, uh, verse of the end of verse 11 there, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. It's kind of ironic because Absalom had a lot of hair, and that's kind of what she was talking about in a roundabout way. Um, the interesting thing here with this 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 wise woman of Tekoa, or this, this clever woman of Tekoa, well, she wasn't so much appealing to um, David's uh, conscience. She was trying to appeal, really, to his emotions. She was trying to draw him in emotionally so that he would um, kind of be sucked in by this thing. And then, verse 12 it says, then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his bandaged uh, one home again. And so she, re- she, she kind of connects the dots for David. And then he begins to realize, wait a minute, something's up here. Uh, this, this isn't making any sense. How would she know all this? Verse 14, we must all die. And this is where she's really appealing to his emotion, okay? Uh, we are all like water spilled on the ground. Well, I mean, she's speaking some truth. We're all going to die one day. The Bible says it's appointed on a man once to die, then the judgment. Uh, We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. In other words, this is inevitable. This is is something that um, 
you know, you, you die once. Uh, that's, that's, that's the rule, and we're all going to meet that fate sooner or later. Um, and then he says this, but she says, but God will not take away life, and he, devi- and he devises means so that the, the bandaged one um, may not remain an outcast. All right, and so she kind of misses the, the, the point here of God's judgment. She's saying, well, you know, we know that God wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, take someone's life. God's not going to judge certain individuals. But we know, as we read the Bible, just the opposite, right? God, throughout Scripture, has taken individuals' lives at times. And so here's where she starts to deviate from truth. And, you know, this is where it's, it's important to understand that we, we can't confuse um, sentimentality with spirituality. She, she begins okay with her theological stance here on we're all going to die once and, and it's inevitable and all this stuff. But then she begins to appeal to his feelings, not really understanding what the Word of God says. And the unfortunate thing is he, he kind of catches on a little bit, but he, he doesn't see the whole picture yet. Um, verse 15 says, now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. If I, I will speak to the king, it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And so he begins, she begins to kind of... Uh, tell the details of the consequences of what might happen to her. In verse 17, And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for the lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. So now she's almost into flattering, trying to flatter King David, saying, you're, you're like an angel of God. You can discern good and evil. Well, obviously, what we know about David, he had a little issue there. You know, uh, he had some problems discerning good from evil. The Lord, your God, be with you, she says. Um, and so, as as the story unfolds here, then the king answered the woman, "Do not hide anything from me." So, at, by this time, he's he's finally catching on. He's putting the the pieces of the puzzle together, and he begins to realize, "Wait a minute, um, there's something up here." There's somebody else involved in this. Um, and I think it's my servant Joab. <laughs> and that's what he says. Now, remember, Joab's completely loyal to King David. He's not, he's not a bad character in that way. And he's trying to, um, he's thinking about the kingdom. He's thinking about being, not having an heir to the throne. All these things are going through his head. And so it comes out in the next couple of verses there that Joab did that. And um, once again, she kind of uh, kind of falls back on uh, you know, flattery, the angel of, of, of God. Your, your wisdom is like the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Wow, you're just so knowledgeable, David. And so, once again, David is moved by this. Okay. He's, he's emotionally drawn in by this woman, and she basically 
in a roundabout way, has her way with him <laughs> and got, gets exactly what she wants and Joab wants. And we're going to find out here uh, in the coming weeks, it, it may not necessarily be a good thing. Um, so in verse 21, Joab, or the king, says, well, okay, um, bring the young man back, bring Absalom back. And Joab was thankful to the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of your servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Now remember, Absalom, king, king, uh, David is king. Okay, Joab is kind of the king's right-hand man. So it'd be like somebody representing the president coming to your house and saying, hey, the president wants to see you in the White House. Pack your bags. You're leaving right now. You know, you wouldn't have much choice, is what my point is, especially back in that day and age. You know, the king was somebody who was to be respected and to be feared. And so... um, you know, Absalom really didn't have any choice in this. And the king said, when he gets back here, don't think you're bringing him to the palace. I, I really don't want to see him. And that's also an indication that the previous language at the end of verse uh, 39 and the beginning of verse 1, why I explained that. Because if he was longing to see him, why wouldn't he welcome his prodigal son home? <laughs> You know, and kill the fatted calf and do all that. Well, it didn't happen that way. Uh, as a matter of fact, for two years, didn't even see him. Didn't want anything to do with him. So he was still pining over the death of his other son. Um, so there's just chaos here in, in David's home, in his household. And it says basically that, you know, Joab uh, brings back Absalom. And he lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Well, after a period of time, the community sees Absalom's home. And for whatever reason, the community had some respect for Absalom. He was good looking. Um, It tells us, you know, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish on him. So he had no acne, he had none of that stuff. You know, he was just fine, fine guy. And uh, for that, he was respected. And that was really a big mistake, right? Remember when David was chosen? What were the, the people were looking for who? They were looking for some strapping man. And the person they ended up with was very appealing to the eye, Saul. But it ended up all wrong. Well, they don't ever learn their lesson. And that's really the story of our whole society, if you think about it, because, <coughs> you know, you go through the, the supermarkets and you look at the magazines and you see these faces on the covers of these magazines and it's like, these are perfect people. I mean, they're perfect. Yeah, you know, they're, they're photoshopped to, to make themselves look perfect. And then you see a picture of them when they're not so perfect, and you go, whoa, that's the same person? You know, without their makeup or whatever? I mean, that would be scary. Yeah, that would be scary, you know? So, but, but our, our society puts so much on 
the idolatry of beauty. It's all about how you look. And, um, you know, the Bible says very clearly there's a way which seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And see, here this lady is, is giving David some wisdom, but really it's, it's not from God. It's from a, a fleshly source. It's not, it's not from a divine source. And so you have the, this, this um, idolatry of, of beauty or looks, you might say. And, and that's what the kind of the, the society we live in today. And, and we see it all around us. Um, people are so concerned about how they look. Now, you know, obviously you should take care of yourself and, you know, you don't want to go out of the house, you know, looking totally in disarray. But we've gone so far to the other extreme. Um, we, we have to be careful with that. And, uh, you know, usually the times... Our looks don't matter as times of distress, all right, or times of heartache or times of um, disarray in our own lives. You know, we really don't, you don't care. And you can tell when people are going through certain things a lot of times just by the way they look. Well, um, Absalom's living in Jerusalem. He's getting frustrated because there's people that are looking to him as the son of the king. He's handsome in appearance, so he's getting some attention that way. And to him, that was important. The reason I know that is because it tells us in verse 26 that when he cut the hair off his head, he did it once a year. So he must have had, you know, kind of the, remember, uh, what was that guy's name, Fabian or whatever, the flowing hair, you know, looked like a lion, whatever, Fabio or whatever his name was. You know, that's kind of hair he must have had, just flowing hair, and boy, everything was just perfect, and then he'd shave his head once a, once a year, and it said he weighed his hair. I mean, that's just kind of bizarre. So he was really into himself. You know, he was, he was really, uh, this was a, a, a big deal, approximately five pounds of hair. So, I mean, I don't know, I just think that's weird. I don't have any hair, but... You know, if I did get a haircut, I don't think I would weigh it. That just that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, verse twenty-seven, and you look at his family. Absalom's three sons—they were probably just as strapping as their father—and one daughter. And ironically, he names her Tamar, and she was a. The emphasis is a beautiful woman, just like previously his sister was, and so it says in verse twenty-eight. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So here he's got the perfect little family. He's got the perfect looks. He's heir to the throne. Everybody knows it. People are starting to kind of, he's beginning to win the adulation of all these people. And he gets frustrated. I can't even go see my dad. I can't even go to the palace. So he said, I'm going to ask Joab to give me a hand. So verse 29, he sent for Joab, Joab and Joab doesn't answer him. <laughs> he just says, I've been there, done that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go there again with this guy. And he sends a second time. Now remember, he's kind of feeling entitled at this, at this point. He's the son of the king. So how dare you not come when I, when I call you, Joab? Uh, 
And so then he tells his servant, hey, isn't Joab's field next to mine? Uh, he's got some barley growing there. Go burn it down. Maybe that'll get his attention. You know, just very much a uh, little brat, really. I mean, that's, that's kind of how he's acting at this point. And, um, you know, probably after being in exile for two years in Jerusalem, he was pretty safe in thinking David was not about ready to execute him because that's kind of what it comes down to here. He gets frustrated and, and Absalom answers Joab, well, you know what, I sent you word, you didn't come, so now I got your attention. Why, have I even, why am I even here? Why did you send for me? I thought we were going to have like a family reunion or something. I've been here two years. This is a waste of my time. It'd be better if I just stayed there. And so therefore, let me go into the, the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, look at what he says. Let him put me to death. So he says, you know what? I'll just face the music. Um, now he knows David's not going to do anything. I mean, you know, he knows his dad uh, is pretty safe in understanding that because he's been there two years already and he's been out and about and David hasn't executed him. And so in the end here, we see that here is uh, uh, Joab went to the king, told him, and what happens? He summoned Absalom. So he came to the king. He bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And what did the king do? The king kissed Absalom. Once again, it kind of depicts really the, you know, you look at that and you say, oh, what a wonderful family reunion. Well, wait till we get to chapter 15, okay, because David is being anything but wise in this situation. He's being manipulated. Um, He's being um, just controlled emotionally, once again, by a woman. And it's sad. It's really sad. I mean, you know, uh, here's... Here's this family. You see it just beginning to, to uh, break down. Um, you know, and, and once again, the emphasis is all, all on the exterior. Nobody's looking at Absalom's heart. David's not asking, well, are you sorry? I mean, do you realize that Absalom came back? He, never, he didn't come back like the prodigal son of Luke 15, repentant. Okay, none of that. Here... He doesn't even say anything. Nothing, nothing, just, you know, hey, if you think I'm guilty, kill me. <laughs> that's all he says. Um, that's not really a repentant heart. That's somebody who's basically calculating, that's trying to manipulate. Uh, and he's all about himself here. He's into his looks, he's into his family. Um, reminds me of a ad story in uh, Reader's Digest I read about. There was a farmer. He put an advertisement in there, and it said, Farmer seeks wife, age 35, must have tractor. Send picture of tractor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he wasn't concerned what the lady looked like at all. He just wanted to make sure she had a good tractor. You know, know, uh, sometimes we get our, our focus on the wrong things. And, and today, you know, it's all about what's on the exterior. Uh, when, when people were hiring, or I remember back when I was a youth pastor, you know, you, you, you had to have a certain kind of a 
demeanor with kids and certain, you know, this and that and everything. And, and certain people were more successful because they looked a certain way or they drove a certain car or they did this or they did that. Well, it hasn't changed at all. First um, Samuel, we saw where man looks at the outward appearance, but what? God looks at the heart. And see, uh, if you saw Absalom, you would have been won over by him in a heartbeat. You probably would have thought, wow. He has everything. He has a charm. He had a way with words. Look at his family. He's got a, you know, a wife, beautiful wife, sons, beautiful daughter. Um, but you know what? His heart was not right. There, there was something wrong there. And you know what this chapter is really about is it's about failure it's about it's about david's failure it's about david's failure as a father to his own children to his own sons um he's kind of this absentee father uh, but you know what the good thing is that that's why we have a thing called the gospel <laughs> that's why we have the good news of the gospel because the gospel is for people like david for people like me, for people like you. Uh, God uses David in an extraordinary way. God is, is teaching David extraordinary lessons as he goes through these hard things with his family. And, and God is still going to bring David lower, we're going to find out. He's not done yet. Uh, and, and God is going to bring David right down because God intends to use David in a mighty way. And... You know, God uses our failures, does he not? He chooses to use our failures. Um, It's through this failure, according to the flesh, uh, really, that Jesus Christ came through his line. I mean, think about that. What what an ironic thing. and that's the beauty of the heart of God. That's, that's the, the heart of God that we serve, that we love. He looks down on people like David, on people like you, on people like me. And he says, you know what? I love you, and I'm going to send my son for you to bring you into my family, into my household, into my kingdom. I'm going to provide this for you. You don't deserve it any more than David deserved what he got. Um, and there's a lot of failure in this chapter, and we're going to see a lot more. But that's why the gospel is there. Uh, because God doesn't use the successful, and even in Absalom's case, the beautiful. But he takes, as we are finding out as we're going through uh, 1 Corinthians, the what? The weak, right? The lowly. The despised things. And he turns them into something far more beautiful, far more glorious uh, than they could ever dream of being. And that's the kind of, of God that we serve. And that's really, I think, the message here for us in chapter 14, is that, yeah, you know what, here we go. D- David's getting manipulated once again. And it sets up chapter 15, where we see Absalom's conspiracy and all this other stuff unfold. But you know what, God is still God, and God will deal with all this stuff. And he will uh, allow even our failures to be used um, for, his, for his glory. Um, so that's chapter 14. Next week we'll look at chapter 15.